The color of money, black banks, and the racial wealth gap. Okay, chapter one, 40 acres, or a savings bank. Slavery, America's original sin, according to James Madison, created the foundation of modern American capitalism. It was slavery and the blood drawn with the lash that opened the arteries of capital and commerce that led to U.S. economic dominance worldwide. The effects of the institution of slavery on American commerce were monumental. 3.2 million slaves were worth $1.3 billion in market value, almost equal to the entire gross national product. Slaves were also a valuable store of capital because they were liquid assets that could be exchanged on markets more easily than other forms of property. Slavery's unparalleled bounty is what caused many Americans to tolerate such a barbarous institution, barbarous institution. Growing uh, international demand for cotton-fueled the growth of slavery and the legal and political arms of the state maintained and protected it more cotton led to more profits which led to more demand for slaves which led to more legislation supporting slavery and then even crueler methods of oppression to extract more work from slaves the institution of slavery was so at odds with the liberal notions of equality avowed in america's founding documents that a theory of racial hierarchy was used to explain away the dissonance. Blacks had to be seen as subhuman so that they could be treated as chattel. In the antebellum era, Christian religious principles were exploited to provide the rationale for racial subjugation. Not only were Slavery and white supremacy condoned by God, but it was seen as God's will that white men exploit the labor of the black race. In the Christian doctrine of slavery, a Presbyterian minister concluded, it may be that Christian slavery is God's solution of the problem of labor about which the wisest statesmen of Europe confess themselves at fault. The stark wealth dis. Uh, the stark wealth distortion caused by slavery and the longevity of its effects cannot be overestimated. Blacks were articles of commerce, as illustrated by the Constitution's three-fifths rule. Slave bodies were assets, credit, debt, currency, forms of capital, and wealth. Between 1820 and the Civil War, banks across the South issued notes with images of slaves printed on the money. The currency of the South was the slave. Slaves were not just the labor in the cotton production process, they were the collateral used to finance the operations. Slavery modernized credit markets, creating complex new forms of financial in in instruments Sorry, and trade networks through which slaves could be mortgaged, exchanged, and used as leverage to purchase more slaves. In highly profitable speculation-based markets, many white men built fortunes trading in slave-backed securities. As is true of property ownership in any era, those who held slaves had the ability to grow exponentially richer because they could use their property to create more wealth. 
For all the economic gains created by slavery, the slaves themselves could never profit. During the 246 years of institutionalized slavery in America, enslaved individuals could not participate in the economy as buyers and sellers. In order for slavery to function, the slaves needed to serve as cogs in the machine and not its drivers. They were therefore not permitted to own assets or offer their labor for pay in any form. These prohibitions, which included ownership of land and trade of any kind, were often cemented in law and enforced through violence. And since slavery was uh, premised on white supremacy in a racial hierarchy, an an ideology avowed across the country and not just in the slaveholding South, even freed blacks were restricted from full participation in commerce. Small numbers of Blacks in the North and small populations of free Southern Blacks did manage to participate in the economy, but they were tightly constrained. In virtually every aspect of Northern life, Blacks were segregated from whites. Jim Crow laws mandating segregation in particularly all spheres of life began in the North and West well before the Civil War. Uh, Alex D. Toxqueville, who came to marvel at America's democracy, was shocked at the level of racial prejudice he observed in the North. The prejudice of race, he wrote, appears to be stronger in the states that have abolished slavery than in those where it still exists. And nowhere is it so intolerant as in those states where servitude has never been known. Many states legally prohibited free blacks from owning property, testifying in court, or practicing professions or trades above menial labor. Black businessmen typically could not sue white debtors in courts and were often restricted from engaging in finance. Similarly, in 1852, Maryland statute excluded blacks from membership in thrift or building and loan institutions. Where where there were no legal barriers, there were social forces that blocked Blacks from organizing banks and businesses. A mere legal grant of a thing, explained a Black businessman, does not mean that it will be immediately enjoyed. Public opinion is often more binding than law, and public opinion regulated Blacks to the lowest economic stratum. During this era of exclusion, free black businessmen relied on their own race for capital and credit. Black banking began as a private affair. There were several black men of means who lent their own money to other blacks, but the group was so small that their names could be recounted by historians writing about them half a century later. To the extent that there were any formal banking structures, they operated through uh, philanthropic societies and churches. The center of the free black community in the North was the city of Philadelphia. And as early as 1788, prominent black clergy and business owners had organized mutual aid societies. Mutual aid societies usually orbited the black church, the central pillar of the black community. The most prominent and long lasting of these was the African Methodist 
uh, Episcopal Church, AME Church in Philadelphia, founded by Richard Allen and Reverend, Reverend Absalom Jones in 1787 with the governing slogan to seek for ourselves it did just that between 1847 and 1904 the church gave over 1 million dollars to educational programs for blacks and by 1907 it had supported 22 schools the collective power the black community harnessed through church membership also made black churches a target for racial hostility and social control. After Nat Turner's slave revolt in 1831, Southern legislators passed laws forbidding blacks from preaching or congregating in their own churches. South Carolina even prohibited groups of black individuals from meeting together for the purpose of mental instruction or religious worship. By the mid to late 1800s, free blacks began to press against trade restrictions by forming a financial sphere of their own. In 1851, uh, leading black businessmen and ministers gathered in New York City for the purpose of making plans for improving the Negroes' economic status. They decided that blacks needed their own banks if they were going to succeed in business. The group resolved that a mutual savings bank be established by Negroes in order to encourage savings and thrift and assist Negroes who wish to enter business. A constant preoccupation among free Northern Blacks trying to operate businesses or buy property was their inability to secure any type of credit. Abram Harris, a prominent Black economist in the 1930s, listed the barriers to black enterprise before the Civil War in the following order. One, the difficulty of obtaining capital and credit. Two, low wages, competition for jobs and immigration. Three, mob violence. Four, occupational restrictions. Five, uh, prohib prohib prohibitions against owning certain types of property, denial of the right to sue, restrictions against settlement in the West, and civic and educational handicaps. Harris emphasized that the greatest handicap was, without a doubt, the difficulty of obtaining capital and credit. Thus, on the eve of the Civil War, there was a vibrant, ongoing discussion among free Blacks in the North on how they might establish credit and banking associations. The bank envisioned by this group of business leaders would be organized as a cooperative society and would rely on black investors in New York who, it was hoped, would invest their total accumulated wealth in the bank to be used as starting capital. It was crucial that the bank have access to the entire black community's resources. It was said that Northern blacks held between $40,000 and $50,000 in Wall Street banks. So that could lend to black entrepreneurs and would-be property owners. This was the first of many attempts by black leaders and businessmen to convince blacks to harness the collective power of black capital in support of black banking. The bank ultimately failed to attract enough capital and was never formed. The black community knew that it needed banks if blacks were ever going to advance economically. 
Alexander Hamilton, the first treasurer secretary and the father of American banking system, explained that it was blacks that could create the augmentation of active or productive capital of a country. Gold and silver, he said, acquire life and only through the operation of a bank. Banks in good credit can circulate a far greater sum than the actual quantum of their capital in gold and silver. Explaining bank lending, the money-multiplying magic of banking, Hamilton explained that bank credit keeps circulating, performing in every stage of office, in every stage the office of money. In other words, it is through banking that American wealth could be created, would be created. Bank credit creates wealth, which is why the isolated free black community kept trying to create its own segregated banking system. Bank credit was needed to augment capital, but could a bank be created without capital? Could bank lending lead to wealth creation, or did banking only work to multiply already accumulated wealth? In a circular economic rut that would be repeated throughout history, there was too little available capital to create a bank that could extend credit so that more capital could be produced. And Blacks' access to capital was limited because they did not have any political power. Hamilton had emphasized that successful banking required a strong partnership with the federal government. He told Congress in 1790 that a bank is not a mere matter of private property, but a political machine of the greatest importance to the state. A healthy government needed a bank to survive, and strong banks relied on government support. In order to thrive, banks needed government charters, free and open access to enforcement of contract laws, and the orderly maintenance of capital and credit markets. Though government intervention in the economy was limited in the antebellum era, government's hand, government's hand was most apparent in banking and currency markets, and it kept blacks out of both. If Hamilton was right in saying that only successful banking could multiply wealth and that strong central government support was needed for a healthy banking system, could a people on the margins of the economy ever create wealth through banking? Black banks would try to answer this question for two centuries. Black leaders continued to discuss the bank even as the slavery question was being hotly contested on the national stage. These were interdependent questions for freedom would be severely restricted without the ability to fully participate in the economy. Black leaders stressed that emancipation would have to be followed by the accumulation of wealth if the black community was to ever achieve meaningful political equality. Frederick Douglass remarked that the history of civilization shows that no people can well rise to a high degree of mental or even moral excellence without wealth. A people uniformly poor and compelled to struggle for barely a physical existence will be dependent and despised by their neighbors and will finally despise themselves. The debate over a black bank became mute. However, 
when free blacks lost their political status as a result of the 1857 Dred Scott case, which held that no black individual, free or enslaved, could claim American citizenship. The case was the last gasp of the South, which was increasingly under pressure to release its grip on its profitable and abusive institution of slavery. The Industrial Revolution significantly changed the nature of the economy and unleashed forces that would eventually lead to Southern secession, the Civil War, and ultimately emancipation. Even though the Civil War decimated the South, the ill-gotten spoils of slavery remained and grew in the former cotton empires in America and Europe for generations. The theories of racial superiority spun to justify centuries of enslavement stuck around too. These theories, so infused in American culture, could not be shed easily, and their long-lasting effects would lead to economic distortions that constantly impeded those formerly enslaved from participating in the white-dominated economy. The freed slaves had to make their transition from being capital to becoming capitalist, from being chattel to owning it. They had to do this having neither money, property, nor friends, as Frederick Douglass explained. The road to wealth presented severe obstacles during the terrible confusion and upheaval in the Reconstruction-era Southern economy. The victorious Union Army granted the slaves their emancipation, and for a transitory moment, the Union came close to giving them a share of the land. After his famous march from Atlanta to the sea, General William T. Sherman remained in Savannah as the war wound down. There, he consulted with several black leaders who told him that the ex-slaves, worried about lingering racial animosity, preferred to take care of themselves on their own land. Black minister Garrison Fraser explained that the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. Blacks had already begun to establish self-governing communities in several places in the South. After emancipation, black communities formed hundreds of mutual aid societies to work toward economic self-sufficiency. They set up charities to take care of the poor and sick and to educate each other. We have progressed a century in a year, said one freedman. During the first year of freedom in 1866, a Negro convention held in Greene County, North Carolina, suggested that blacks could raise their economic status by creating joint stock companies and patronizing black businesses. The black community's main objective, which it sought through political means, was acquiring land. Emancipated slaves and their Northern Republican supporters believed that land ownership was the only way to achieve a free market in the South. Without land, they would be at the mercy of their previous owners. Sherman, Sherman signed Field Order 15 in March 1865, which set aside 400,000 acres of confiscated land for freed slaves. Sherman's plan was to create a territory exclusively for ex-slaves where they could live free of white control and manage their own economic and political affairs. In justifying this action, Sherman borrowed from Thomas Jefferson's populist view of land as, what's that, usufruct? Usufruct. 
The basic idea was that landowners, oh, landholders own property only due to the benevolence of the federal government in which all land rights resided. The Southern Confederates' traitorous act of secession forfeited their land rights. Two months after the Sherman Order, Congress created the Freedmen's Bureau and tasked it with transitioning former slaves to their new lives. Part of the plan was to dial out the seized land. The Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1865 formalized Sherman's field order into law, providing that each Negro might have 40 acres at a low price on long credit. The order came directly from President Lincoln, who wished to give free slaves an interest in the soil. The price of land was to be fixed at $1.25 per acre, 40% of which was due up front. The land was to be protected by the military until Congress could act to formalize land titles. Some families even received uh, leftover army mules. It seemed that the government was about to create a black landowning class. <clears throat> In fact, during the Reconstruction era, racial equality was even contemplated. Black lawmakers and radical Republican allies like Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, actively pursued full integration and equality.